0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are once again in Matthew chapter 27 this morning. Matthew 27, verses 27 through 30. Just uh, four short verses there. Mark 15, verses 16 through 19 also four verses, and then John 19, verses 1 through 15, so a much longer section, a 15-verse section, and something I'm very thankful for, that uh, we have the information related to Pilate's final attempt to release Jesus, even after the conviction, even after uh, Pilate knows that he really has no way out. He does make one final attempt through uh, the visual display of Jesus' suffering uh, in the uh, in the face of his accusers, and uh, we'll talk about why uh, Pilate thought that might have been useful and uh, why it is that there was no, uh, no, no hope for it at all, given the, uh, the darkness in which the mobs had descended. So, this is episode 34. We got a good start on it last week. I want to build on what we left off with. Let's, uh, before we get going, though, let's start with a word of prayer so we can uh, set aside distractions. We can make sure we're in fellowship and we are prepared to handle eternal truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word, for the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together. Father, this is our uh, grace provision on this day. You've supplied it for us. We thank you. That uh, uh, we have the opportunity to redeem it and to do so for the glory of your Son, our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. All right, let's uh, just refresh our thinking on this. I'll read the four verses out of Matthew 27. It follows his release, or his scourging, and then uh, handing off into custody. Uh, it says in verse 26 of Matthew 27 that he released Barabbas for them and after having Jesus scourged he handed him over to be crucified. He handed him over to be crucified. For example, when a judge says guilty and then he is released into the custody of the bailiff or the the bailiff uh, takes him to the sheriff or he's put into somebody's custody to, uh, to deal with the actual execution of the sentence whether that be... Uh, jail or, uh, imprisonment or, uh, in this case, scourging, things we don't have in our modern judicial system. But there it is. Uh, really the scourging is a prologue and then the handing over to be. Crucified. Verse 27, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head in a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him. On the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him, put his own garment back on him, and led him away to be crucified. Now, as you look at those verses there, uh, if you're reading it the same way I'm reading it, I'm sure, uh, it looks like Pilate disappears in verse 26. But Pilate is actually still on the scene in verse 26. So uh, it says, He, that's Pilate, released Barabbas for them. So Pilate's still in view as the subject of the verb released. But then after having Jesus scourged, tells me that Pilate was still present for the scourging. Uh, and then he, Pilate, handed him over to be crucified. Uh, the handing over, the betrayal, the deliverance. All right, Pilate is the subject of the verb handed him over to be crucified. So Pilate is still in view through verse 26. Then the soldiers in verse 27 took Jesus into the praetorium. Now at that point I think they depart from uh Pilate's location. So Pilate is not present for the uh the stripping and the slapping and the spitting and the mocking and the scarlet robe and the and the crown of thorns and the the uh, the reed and all of that. Do you, you read the same way I read it? All right. And so that's what we see there. Pilate actually disappears after The scourging. We gave this actually as a point of study. Matthew and Mark present Pilate's scourging of Jesus as a prologue to his additional mockery. The scourging is a prologue to his additional mockery. It's almost said, it is said in passing. It is said uh, not really as a main statement, but as a uh, temporal clause, right? As a as a participial adjunct to the main verb, after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified, right? The, the 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 temporal clause after having Jesus scourged is just simply in passing. It'd be like after pouring a cup of coffee, Pastor Bob taught a Life of Christ class. Now, is the main thrust of that? After Pastor Bob poured a cup of coffee? No, it's ridiculous. I didn't even pour the cup, actually. I'm telling a lie this morning, um, but you understand that that it, all it is is a temporal clause. It, is, it establishes the framework in time, and is not designed to be the main point. The main point is he handed him over to be crucified after having Jesus scourged. So it's spoken of in passing. It's spoken of as a uh, as an adjunct to the main activity, which it is. The main activity is not his physical the brutality, the physical brutality that he endured. After that, he was crucified. Same thing in Mark 15, if you want to join me there. Mark 15, largely identical to what we just read, very parallel in almost every way. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them and So you understand the wishing to satisfy the crowd is a participial expression. It's it's giving you the motivation for the the activity. The activity is releasing Barabbas. And then you have after having Jesus scourged. Again, it's attendant circumstances. It's simply setting the uh, as a temporal clause. "He He handed him over to be crucified. So two verbs, what Pilate does there. He releases and he hands over. Barabbas is who he released. Jesus is who he handed over to be crucified. The attendant circumstances, wishing to satisfy the crowd. The attendant circumstances, after having Jesus scourged. All right? It's simply in passing. It's a comment made in passing. Or as you have on the point on the slide, uh, a prologue to this additional mockery. The soldiers then took him away into the palace. Again, we, I view this the same way I view Matthew, that Pilate's on hand in verse 15, but then they take Jesus away from Pilate to a separate place into the praetorium, and uh, that's where they then mock him and do all the rest outside of Pilate's observation. The things that uh, underlings will do when the direct supervision is no longer uh, no longer around. Okay, When the cat's away, the mice will play. Isn't that how it goes? All right. And uh, away from Pilate's presence then comes the mockery. The, the scourging, there's no problem. That can be done in his presence. It's done at his direction. It's done under his sovereignty, under his authority, under his, uh, uh, the Latins wouldn't use sovereignty. They would use imperium. Under his imperium, they're free to scourge him. Uh, but then with his back turned, they take him out and that's when the mocking then occurs. So it's a prologue to the additional mockery. Last week we looked at the vocabulary involved, pretty unique vocabulary in Matthew and Mark. The term is fragilao, uh, related to the cognate noun Fragelion And fragilao, um, number 5417. And we did confirm last week that the Fragelion is uh, 5416. And so that's a slide that needs to be remedied. Uh, but 5417 is the strongest number for the verb phragalao, and 5416 is the strongest number for the noun fragellion, the scourge. Uh, this is the only place in the New Testament where it occurs. Technically, it's not even a Greek word. It's a loan word borrowing from the Latin, the flagellum in Latin. John's parallel text uses mastagao. uses mastagao, and that's a much better attested word, uh, seven, not only seven times in the New Testament, but 30 times in the Septuagint, uh, ver, uh verb with respect to scourging that we have our own application of as sons of God the Father in Hebrews 12.6. And I don't want to go back and reteach everything we taught last week, but understand when you study scourging, uh, you're not just studying history. You're not just studying what they used to do a long time ago. And actually, not all that long time ago either. In within the last hundred years, we had scourging as a uh, wh- even uh, whipping as a uh, corporal punishment in military uh, on on board ships in the navy, for example, in military uh, activities. Uh, not that long ago, okay, um, as a part of our own history. Obviously, our spiritual application comes in Hebrews 12:6 that if God loves us, if we're His children, then He's going to discipline us, and He's going to scourge every son whom He receives. That scourging there is an activity we can anticipate in uh, Hebrews 12:6 as a quotation from uh, Proverbs 3:12. Uh, some other cognate forms, but we'll uh, we'll move beyond what we dealt with last week. Finally. One thing we want to get away from is the idea that this Roman scourging is a fulfillment of anything uh, related to our salvation. Uh, The Roman scourging should not be viewed as the fulfillment of Isaiah 53.5. So let's uh, leave the Gospels and go back now to Isaiah 53 and, uh, and take a look at this. Yes, by his scourging we are healed. That is a statement that is found in Isaiah 53.5. But that statement does not sit by itself. And that statement is not the totality of everything that happened with Jesus. And so insofar as that one statement gets quoted, we want to recognize that that one statement is representative of a much larger whole. And we have an idiom that's found in the Greek whereby one thing is spoken of as the whole. All right, very common idiom. It's it's, it's common in Hebrew. It's common in Greek. It's common in English. All right. We can can use one thing, and it represents the whole. Uh, I've heard it on the news last night, for example. They talk about, uh, you know, Washington did this. What does that mean? Washington did this. Well, meaning the federal government of the United States of America as... Uh, operating within the you know territory of the Washington D.C. Okay. our government, our Congress, our President, Washington did such and such, and so a phrase is used to represent the whole. And uh, likewise here, uh, by his scourging we are healed. Uh, it's a it's a one element out of a much larger package, and we can use that to represent the whole. And the whole includes he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And so this one phrase, by his scourging we are healed, is representative of the whole, the entire event of the the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We could do the same thing if we simply refer to the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is an idiom. The blood of Christ is a representative term that that applies to the entire work of Christ, what he did for us as our substitute, what he did before the Father as as the priest. Pouring out his soul that we see here. You get down to verse 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him. Now the Lord was pleased. Understand, the good pleasure of the Lord is his sovereignty in action. It's the fulfillment of his grace eternal plan. God does that which he pleases in the fulfillment of his plan from Alpha to Omega, and that includes the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Jesus Christ had to be volitionally on board. The Father was not going to be well pleased if Jesus Christ went grudgingly or under compulsion because God loves the cheerful giver. So if and only if he, Jesus Christ, would render himself as a guilt offering, only on that volitional basis would the Father be then well pleased to crush him. He will see his offspring... Jesus Christ is going to have offspring. He will fulfill a father function in the new heavens and new earth in the fullness of time. Up till now, God the Father has had the father role. And those that are born again and redeemed are children of God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. You and I are children of God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. But a stewardship is coming when God the Son will exercise the father role. He has to. Fulfill the father role. Because the father is showing him all things that he himself is doing. You ever think about that? And if the father is showing him all things, would that not include the role of the father? If the father is not showing the son how to fulfill the role of the father, then the father is not showing the son all things that he himself, the father, is doing. That the son may do likewise. Likewise. And so the Father is showing the Son the Father role, and the Son is going to exercise the Father role in the uh, on the new heavens and new earth in the dispensation of the fullness of time, after the uh, millennium, after the great white throne. And so, as a result, so let's see, uh, where did I leave off? In verse ten, he would render himself. He would render himself as a guilt offering. He is both the priest and the offering because he is bringing himself. Nothing greater that he could bring. Same thing for you and for I, by the way. Do we present ourselves living in holy sacrifices? We're supposed to. He will see his offspring he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand as a result of the anguish of his soul. As a result of the anguish of his soul. Not the brutality of a physical scourging. Not the aches and pains and bruises and cuts and lacerations and blood loss and shock and trauma and all the other things that go along with a scourging. The anguish of his soul. He will see it and be satisfied. And uh, this is what we evaluated in the the context of the Lord's uh, prayer in Gethsemane the night before when he confessed to his disciples that he was experiencing this anguish. The father was teaching him that very night the suffering that he would that he would receive imputed to him the next day. And he passed the test. He said, not my will, but thine be done. He accepted it. He said, yes, I will render myself as a guilt offering. And he was therefore suited to proceed to the arrest and trial and crucifixion. But as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it. That is, the Lord, God the Father, will see it and be satisfied. This gives us the basis for which second, uh, First John 2 tells us that God the Father was propitiated. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. It doesn't say why in 1 John chapter 2. It just tells us that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. That God the Father is satisfied. This verse tells us why God the Father is satisfied. All right. He will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, by means of his knowledge, the instrumental use here, by means of his knowledge. And until he has this knowledge, until he learns obedience through the things which he suffers. (coughs) In other words, until he learns what the human anguish is all about, that he will accept an imputation by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. (coughs) and he will bear their iniquities. Without that knowledge, he cannot be the justifier. He cannot be the justifier. He can still be sinless and perfect. He can still be qualified, but it's his knowledge that that makes him the justifier, according to this passage here. (coughs) And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, it's only by his victory that he is entitled to this allotment. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out his soul, his nephesh himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He was not a transgressor, the only one that it was ever not a transgressor but he was numbered with the transgressors he was adjudicated as a transgressor it was imputed to him as a transgressor not just by man but by god the father himself numbered his son as a transgressor and judged him yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors never once did he ever lose his objectivity or never once did he lose his uh, heart of love. He kept praying the whole time, Father, hold this not against them. They know not what they do. We'll see that as we go detail by detail through the uh, the cross itself. All right, so what was the physical, uh, what was the point? Why, why did the Father abuse him? Why did the Father have him scourged? Why not just, uh, you know, okay, you're arrested, you're, you're convicted, just go to cross and start start interceding for the saints. Why did the... Why did he require the scourging to precede that? And um, it's a why question. We may not have all the answers. In fact, a lot of why questions, we don't have any answers. Uh, But we do trust that it was to no purpose. I mean, it was not to no purpose because the Father does nothing for no purpose. So why? And my suspicion is because it was necessary that... um, in keeping with what the Lord's teaching us in the thorn in the flesh passage, it's only when we're weak that we are strong. And I wonder if, uh, in fact, Jesus was too strong prior to the scourging, physically strong, prior to the scourging. And he needed to be weakened prior to the crucifixion, and scourging is what did it. The scourging is what removed the last shreds of his physical strength and human ability from him, whereby he was now suited to be 100% totally dependent upon God the Father and the Holy Spirit in order to do the cross. All right. Could he, without the scourging, have been too physically strong? to endure the sins of mankind? Would he have had a temptation on the cross to handle it in his own strength and not be reliant upon the Father and the Holy Spirit? I don't know. I'm just just speculating or suspecting that consistent with Scripture, it's only in weakness that strength is perfected, we're told. Power is perfected in weakness. And I can't imagine Jesus Christ going to the cross with anything short of perfected strength. That is the perfected strength of of God the Father in him. Okay, Don't ever lose track of the fact that God the Father was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Don't ever lose sight of that. The test on uh, the mount was Abraham's test. It was the Father's test. The test on Golgotha is, yes, it's the son's test to be volitionally in agreement, but who else is being tested there? God the Father is being tested there. All right, which gets us then to the second main point of our study. John also details the scourging and the mocking, but goes on to detail Pilate's final release attempt. You might even consider this a third, it's not really a third trial before Pilate, but it does include more questions. Pilate has more questions of the Lord, and not. you could conceivably even think of it as a third trial. Although that may not be the best way to think of it. Pilate's not really reconvening any proceedings. But he, he does have some fearful questions that he wants answered before he finally surrenders to the, to the will of the mob. And so I don't know that, that anyone really views this as, as a third trial. But it is uh, necessary that we take a look at it and understand what's happening here. So join me in John 19. And in particular, we'll spot some differences between trials one and two and uh, what's going on here. John chapter 19, the prologue in verses one through three, and then the release attempt in four through eight. Same thing at the end of chapter 18 here. Uh, Pilate says, hey, here's an idea. You got this great custom. Um, Shall I release king of the Jews at Passover? And they said, no, uh, we want Barabbas. So Pilate then in 191, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers, verse 2, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And, and I think what we have here is agreement with what we were suspecting when we were reading Matthew and Mark, is that Pilate's the one that had him scourged. And then the soldiers took him elsewhere and, and did their mocking. So Pilate's the subject of the verb scourging in nineteen one. And then soldiers are the subject of the verbs, you know, twisting and the things that happened there. And then in verse 4, Pilate came out again. And so verses 2 and 3 are obviously somewhere other than where Pilate is. And that agrees with what we read in Matthew and Mark. So uh, Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and put a purple robe on him. began to come up to him and say, "Hail, King of the Jews!" and give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, "Now we actually have an address to the mob. Not recorded in Matthew. Not recorded in Mark. As far as the synoptic gospels are concerned, not recorded in Luke. Luke actually even omits the." The uh, the mocking here, but recorded in John for us is one final address to the mob. And it's an address to the mob with a beaten and humiliated and and disgusting, uh, you know, uh, uh, horrendously appearance uh, in appearance. uh, Jesus as a visual display. So uh, Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, behold, the man actually puts him on display in all that ugliness of the physical beating and all of the mockery of the crown of thorns and the the purple robe and on full visual display of that total ugliness lays it before the mob. Now, why would he do such a thing? Why put such a hideous display right there in front of people? Okay, well, different reasons. I can... Envision very easily. And you probably can as well. Because look and the attempts he's already made to not do this. To talk them out of it. And nothing so far has worked. He's been unsuccessful at least twice now to talk them out of it. So what difference does it make now? Uh, I think it makes a huge difference. Now he actually places their brutality and their ugliness right in front of them to stare at. Would that wake you up? Okay. (laughs) Well... It doesn't wake them up. Now, as a tactic and as an idea, as a concept, all right, nice idea. And maybe you've tried it with your children. Maybe you've tried it with whatever. You've tried it in different venues. Um, Maybe, and here's where you go with this, because maybe you're giving the gospel to an unbeliever and they don't think they need to be saved. They don't understand how, what their sin, lost estate and sin is. They actually think they're pretty good people. They're fairly moral. They're, they're nicer than some of their neighbors. They're actually nicer than some Christians they know. And they, they don't really view themselves as really being all that bad and needing to be saved. And so perhaps there are occasions in which you, um, you know, you're, you're pulling them out of a gutter and you're cleaning up their, their puke and you're showing them their, their drunkenness and their, and their, their sin. And sometimes that visual, undeniable reality hits you and you go, hmm, this is it. Okay, a lot of it, you know, eight years working in the jail, you see a lot of this. These guys just hanging their heads. They never thought they'd, they, you know, they reach jail. It's the lowest they've ever been in their earthly life. Well, the sad part is, depending on how hard, uh, how the how hard the heart has become. Sometimes staring at the ugliness of it, not even that will wake a person up. If anything, that hardness of heart just becomes all the more seared. And that's what we see happening here. As Pilate goes on to detail the final release attempt. Pilate presented the scourged and mocked ugliness. The scourged and mocked ugliness to the mob, with his "Behold the man" proclamation. With his "Behold the man" proclamation, that's verse five. He presented the scourged and mocked ugliness to the mob, with his "Behold the man" proclamation. In part, I I don't blame Pilate, because in part, what has he been told? He's been told from the religious leaders that Jesus was an insurrectionist, that Jesus was claiming to be king, that Jesus was drawing people away from Rome. And what Pilate has already figured out is that they delivered him up because of jealousy. Pilate's already figured out that the Pharisees are more concerned that Jesus isn't drawing people away from Rome. Jesus is actually drawing people away from the Pharisees, drawing people away from the Sanhedrin, drawing people away from the Sadducees and the religious leaders. That's what he's drawn people away from. And something like this actually could be quite useful, because if you think about it, how do you gather followers? And what's the nature of followers? And what's the nature of, what is it that causes people to be attracted to people? How is it the Pharisees attract their followers? How is it the Sanhedrin attracts their followers? How is it that charismatic uh, religious leaders attract their followers? Well, if you destroy the charisma, it's going to make it hard for them to gain additional followers. And in fact, it would probably drive away quite a few followers. Here's this guy at a bloody pulp. He's not very attractive. He's not very um uh he's not going to be gathering followers anytime soon he's you think he's learned his lesson okay it 's the way bullies work it 's the way gangster hoodlums work you know the the first beating is designed to to change your behavior you know change what you 're doing or the next one'll be worse okay next time we 'll bust your kneecap okay i 'm watching too many gangster movies lately <laughs> um In human terms, just on a purely cosmos basis, this scourging should please everybody. The Sanhedrin should be happy. The mobs you know, should be horrified. Uh, Jesus won't be ministering anytime soon. He's not going to do another walking itinerant ministry of Galilee this week. He's going to need some recuperation time. And hopefully he'll be thinking better about what he's doing and stop causing so much trouble. And Pilate won't have to have the blood on his hands for murdering an innocent person. All right? Because Pilate knows he's not guilty. So it's a good theory. The only problem is, obviously, is that Jesus is going to go to the cross. He's been delivered over not by the Sanhedrin, but by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God the Father. Nothing Pilate does is going to work. And don't be surprised if when you try this method and you place somebody's ugliness before them, and that doesn't wake them up, well, sometimes if there's a lot of satanic or demonic uh, darkness at work, then you'll understand what you're dealing with. Behold the man. Now, uh, when the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, they cried out. Now, I believe the chief priests and the officers are now manipulating. They've, they've been manipulating all along. Notice the chief priests and the officers in verse 7, and then the Jews answered in verse 7. That's the mob right there called the Jews. All right, But the chief priests and the officers are the instigators. They're the ones that are pulling the strings. They're the ones that are manipulating things. And so we have this now under uh, verses 6 and 7. Point B. The chief priests, the officers, and the Jews were unmoved by the visual display. The chief priests, the officers, and the Jews were unmoved by the visual display. That's verses 6 and 7. Unmoved by the visual display. Hmm. <laughs> There's a flip side to this too, by the way. You can move people with a visual display and have no content behind it. <laughs> All right? That's that's, a, that's a different set of sermons right there. People can be moved by their senses, by what they see, the visuals, the music, the sound, the atmosphere, the, the, the sensual, as it were, can be very moving. And yet... No substance to it, no doctrine, no no meat, no no reality. Uh, that's that's a different matter. Uh, here, this this visual display was was kind of the last resort when he's already tried to appeal to reason. He's already appealed to thought. He's already appealed to logic in the previous release attempts. And uh, so you know, if logic doesn't work, go with emotion. <laughs> that's pilot's theory here. And then, uh, I'm not I'm not advocating that, okay? <laughs> I'm saying that's what Pilate's doing. Oh my goodness. Someone will clip that from an MP3 someday and they'll have me on record saying, if logic doesn't work, appeal to emotion. All right. So, when the chief priest and the officer saw him, they cried out saying, crucify, crucify. <laughs> so, uh, they're just going to repeat their decision. They're going to make it louder and louder and louder until they get their way. And Pilate said to them, take him for yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Yet again, a declaration of innocence here. Is this the third one, I think, from Pilate. And the Jews answered him, we have a law. And by that law, he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Now Pilate's got a problem. Because he was already afraid. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He was even more afraid. You spot that there in verse 8? Pilate was already afraid. You cannot be even more afraid if you're not afraid already to start with. Right? In order to be even more something, you've got to be something to start with. Okay. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. So under point C, Pilate was already afraid. But the Jewish testimony to Jesus' deity increased Pilate's fear. He was already afraid. Now, some of the fear is interesting. We've we've evaluated the nature of the Sanhedrin's threat um, uh, about uh, if you want to be a friend of Caesar. You're going to crucify this man. The threat that they would report him to Caesar had put him apparently in some kind of fear. Uh, the fear of a riot we've seen. Uh, that Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing and that a riot was forming. Um, that has, has caused him to do certain things. So he's had fear in different capacities. Uh, we know from the secular histories uh, exactly what uh, he wasn't in the, the highest of favor back in Rome anyway. When it comes to that, So we had some degree of fear. Now the fear is ramped up even more. Now the fear is ramped up even more. So uh, when you're making decisions based on fear, are they good decisions <laughs> Then what happens when you're not allowed to make those decisions because things are taken out of your hands and your fear is increased? Now you're making other decisions. Now you're going to plan B. You're going to a backup plan. Not what you wanted to do in the first place, but all right, fine. Now it's something else. You'll, you'll do this instead, right? So not what you wanted to do in the first place. Now you're doing a backup plan because you couldn't do the first plan. But the first plan itself wasn't all that great of a plan because it was motivated by fear. So when plan A was already a bad choice. And now you're switching to plan B. You see what I'm saying? It's even worse. It's even worse because plan A was based on fear. Now plan B is based on more fear and frustration that you couldn't do plan A. It's just going from bad to worse. And this is what we see this is what we see with carnality, this is what we see with believers that are walking in darkness. And they're making bad decisions based on sin. Bad decisions based on emotional revolt. Bad decisions based on, I don't want to get caught for the first bad decision I made. Now I'm making even worse decisions. And the whole illustration for this is David and Bathsheba, right? Let's cover up the the adultery with some murder. So, Pilate's... Apostrophe S, Pilate's... Last interrogation, or previous interrogation, focused on kingship. Pilate's previous interrogation of Jesus focused on kingship. And it ended with Pilate rejecting a message of truth. This is just to remind you, because it's different from what we see here. In, in Pilate's previous interrogation, he focused on kingship and ended with Pilate rejecting a message of truth. You remember that? Wasn't that long ago? Was it like two weeks ago, three weeks ago? Matthew, uh, John 18 verses 33 through 38. Are you king of the Jews? That's what that was his focus. Are you king of the Jews? Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did the others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priests deliver you to me. What have you done? <laughs> Pilate's trying to see through the, to, the, to the real issues. Pilate's trying to read between the lines and see what's really happening and understand the jealousy. What have you done? And how can I keep you from doing it again? I think a good scourging will keep you from doing that again. What have you done? And then Jesus has this powerful message. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Glorious message for you and I in Christ with spiritual discernment. Pilate got nothing out of it. What did Pilate get out of it? So you're a king? (laughs) You say you're a king then? That's all he heard when my kingdom is not of this world. You're a king then. So the the last interrogation focused on kingship. Jesus goes on, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born. For this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate then said to him, what is truth? So that's the, that's the previous interrogation. Pilate's last uh, interrogation focused on kingship and ended with Pilate rejecting a message of truth. This interrogation, in contrast, focuses on deity. The whole thing is sparked by the word that he hears from the mob. He he stops in his tracks, runs back indoors, has more questions. Where are you from? (laughs) Why does he ask that? Where are you from? We have a law that he ought to die because he made himself out to be God. So he runs back, where are you from? That's an odd question. If somebody is alleged to be making claims of deity, am I going to go and inquire as to their, where are you from? Well, you wonder how much had he been exposed to? What answer is he afraid of hearing here? Where are you from? Well, where does a God come from? Where are you from? Again, he's pagan, he's Roman. So this interrogation focuses on deity and ends. It's quite interesting. What is the response? Is it a what is truth negative response? Pilate responding to a message of authority from above and greater sin. Authority from above and greater sin. This message becomes remarkable. So, uh, and it's verses... uh, 9-11 uh, here. So when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Back to the silent again, right? We've seen when he was silent. We've seen when he answered. Now he's silent. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? and I have authority to crucify you. This is where Pilate's coming from, of course. He's, he is the authority in Judea. He is the sovereign. He, is the, he has the imperium, huge in the Roman uh, uh, structure of things. There is no higher authority than him in Judea. Of course, he has to go back and answer to Rome. But in Judea, there's no higher imperium than Pilate. And Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. That's a bit of a double entendre. We could take that two different ways in the sense of Pilate would recognize he has no earthly authority except that which was delegated to him from Caesar. That's not what Jesus is talking about. That's the context in which Pilate will understand it. But it's not what Jesus is talking about. He says from above, not Rome, but heaven. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has not the greater crime, the greater sin. An offense against not man, but an offense against God. And as a result of this, here's the response. Not to wash his hands and say what is truth, but to, as a response, responding to a message of authority from above and responding to a message of greater sin, Pilate made efforts to release him. Pilate made efforts to... Release him. How many efforts? What kind of efforts? Uh, first, I didn't say the details aren't there. All oh, we we can we can speculate, we can wonder. But the longer it delayed, the longer it delayed. How restless do you think that the mob is becoming outside? Okay, longer and longer, louder, louder. Okay. That's what we see here. Uh, but the Jews cried out, saying, "If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be king opposes Caesar." So therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabatha. So back out again. Here's finally when the last uh, appeal is exhausted, and he's he's handed over. It was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, the day of preparation for the Passover. I thought Passover was yesterday. Didn't the disciples eat their Passover dinner last night? Hmm. Never thought of that, did you? There's a tremendous puzzle here. Is, uh, is Thursday the Passover date or Friday the Passover date? And why can disciples eat Passover with Jesus on Thursday night? And why uh, do the, does the Sanhedrin eat their Passover on Friday night? It's a puzzle. And there's a puzzle with an answer. Very powerful answer. In fact, I'll be glad to, we'll probably walk through next week and uh, explain some of that. Um, and, or if you can't wait, read Harold Honor and his Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. And he'll explain to you uh, why both Thursday and Friday can be Nisan 14. All right. Um, about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. Now, no longer is it a behold the man proclamation, it's a behold your king proclamation. There's a contrast. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Man, this is just going from bad to worse. Every attempt, every every word spoken is just uglier than the words before. So he handed him over to them to be crucified. So we've gone from Gethsemane to Gabatha, and now we're on our way to Golgotha in verse 17. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. And we'll deal with that in our next episode, but uh, episode 35. But um, but you see all these G words, Golgotha in verse 17, Gabatha in verse 13. And then, obviously, back in the Synoptic Gospels, he had Gethsemane for the uh, the garden where he prayed, and was arrested the night before indoor and outdoor release efforts by the roman governor were thwarted by the jews devotion to caesar indoor and outdoor release efforts by the roman governor were thwarted by the jews devotion to caesar indoor and outdoor release efforts by the roman governor I meant to switch my A and my B around, and I didn't. Indoor and outdoor release efforts by the Roman governor were thwarted by the Jews' devotion to Caesar. Indoors, in verse 12, where he was making efforts to release him, and then outdoors, in verses 13 and 14, where he sits down on the the pavement, on the bima. There's actually the word bima there. Uh, sat down on the bema at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, uh, Gabbatha. Gabbatha. Behold your king. The last word that he says is behold your king. Shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. Now, um, I will eventually swap these around. So point A will say the pavement gives us an interesting link from Gethsemane to Gabbatha to Golgotha. You could even uh, craft a VBS curriculum or a study school curriculum or something to, if you wanted to teach a series of lessons from Gethsemane to Gabbatha to Golgotha, I think and portray a number of a uh, number of different lessons related to this. And then finally, in our last ten minutes, this bema pictures a more important judgment seat. We have a visual picture here of a bema that you and I will have to stand before someday. This bema pictures a more important judgment seat. All right. I realize the slide has the A and the B. I decided a couple days ago I was going to swap those around and I just failed to failed to do it. Um, but this bema pictures a more important judgment seat. Bema is a Greek word. Beta, eta, mu, alpha, bema. Number 968 is the strongest concordance number. Has 12 New Testament uses, including the two here in the Gospels, Matthew 27:19 and John 19:13, both with reference to Pilate and the judgment on Jesus. And then in the Book of Acts, Acts 18 and Acts 25, two chapters in the Book of Acts, where there is a bema. And then the ones that apply to you and to me in uh, Romans 14, 10 and 2 Corinthians five ten. If uh, you're not familiar with these in the book of Acts, Acts 18 and Acts 25. Acts 18, verse 12. And... Um, This is in the midst of his uh, second missionary journey here. And, uh, or I'm sorry, third missionary journey, Acts 18. And he's at Corinth, of all places. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the Bema, the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And um, not all that different from what Jesus was accused of before Pilate. Uh, angry Jews, violation of the law as their primary gripe. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. In other words, it's not a legal matter. It's not a crime. You're talking about a sin. You're talking about a religious matter that you're not happy with. It would be reasonable for me to put up with you. <laughs> okay. The Roman attitude against the Jews, you see it playing out there. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge in these matters. As a matter of fact, 1 uh, Corinthians tells us he, is, he has no standing to be a judge in these matters. We can't take our spiritual uh, circumstances and place them before a secular court, a secular judge. And so he drove them away from the Bema, from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat, in front of the Bema. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Yeah. Mob action was Gallio care. Just pay the taxes, keep Rome happy, we'll have order in the town. You know, an unruly Jewish mob can beat a Jewish guy, who cares? All right. And so that's the, uh, the event there. And then over to chapter 25, another Bema. This one's before King Agrippa, verses 6, nope, not, not Agrippa, verses 6, 10, and 17, before Festus. Festus then, having arrived in the province three days later, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. The chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, requesting him a concession against Paul, that he might have him brought to Jerusalem. At the same time, setting an ambush to kill him on the way. All right, Please, please, yeah, release him to our custody. We're going to take him for a religious trial in the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. They had no such plans. They were just going to ambush him on the way there. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea, that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go there with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, I'll uh, let them prosecute him. Then um, verse 6, after he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took a seat on the Bema, translated tribunal, and ordered Paul to be brought and uh, Paul arrived. The Jews who had come down from Jerusalem, stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I've committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus wishing to do the Jews a favor. Okay, now here's, uh, you know, is this, is this really justice? Let's keep the mobs happy. Maybe I'll get something out of this too. Wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's bema tribunal, where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. He's been with him eight or ten days. He's got it figured out by now. If I then am wrongdoer, to have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true... Of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. And the moment he utters those words, he is entitled as a Roman citizen to uh, journey to Rome and make his appeal there. So, uh, which is actually kind of a sad thing, because later on, uh, Festus will tell Felix, or will tell Agrippa, um, if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, we could release him right now. (laughs) We could release him right now. But... Be that as it may. All right, let's close then with Romans 14.10, 2 Corinthians 5.10. What you and I have to look forward to. Do you dread this? Hope not. Although I expect uh, there are elements that I'm not looking forward to. But uh, it is what it is. Can't deny it. I'm just uh, hoping in the days forward to lay up the gold, silver, and precious stones. Because I know that in the days past I've, uh, are sufficient for the... Uh, Wood, hay, and stubble have already piled up there. Romans 14.10, we all must appear before the bema to theu, the judgment seat of God. The bema of God. And this is a tremendous motivation for us to not be so snooty, prideful, judgmental, wicked towards one another. You, why do you judge your brother? You again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? We don't live for ourselves. We live for one another. Let's start blessing them. No one lives for himself. No one dies for himself. We all must stand before the Bema to theo in verse 12. Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. And 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent. This is, uh, you know, we walk by faith, not by sight. We prefer to be uh, absent from the body, to be at home with the Lord. Physical death is preferable, right? You know, George Beverly Shea had to wait 104 years before he could finally, uh, (laughs) I I suspect uh, he's now singing How Great Thou Art. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart, then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great. He gets to sing that in heaven. My God, how great thou art. 104 years old. Went, went to heaven yesterday. Um, and we prefer to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the Bema to Christu. So it's the Bema to Theu in Romans, the Bema to Christu um, in 2 Corinthians. That's not a contradiction. All judgment's been given to the Son. So the the judgment of God is the judgment of Christ. So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Is it gold, silver, precious stones under the filling of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Jesus Christ, for the good pleasure of God the Father? Or is it wood, hay, and stubble? under the filling and power of the, of the flesh for your own motivation and glory. There it is. All right, any questions? Yes. The blasphemy laws. Claiming to be God. He violated the blasphemy laws and, and any blasphemer was to be stoned. Good question. Other questions? So why is Nissan 14 Thursday and Friday? If Thursday is Nissan 14, then Friday's got to be Nissan 15. But if Friday is Nissan 14, then Thursday has to be Nissan 13. Can they both be Passover? Passover? That's right. There are two Nisan 14s depending on whether you are using the sundown to sundown calendar or you are using the sun up to sun up calendar. Um, And Galileans reckon by one way and Judeans with the Sanhedrin uh, reckon the other way and that's. Exactly. Correct. That is exactly the answer. So, thank you, Father, for your truth. Thy word is true. Thank you for this morning and the blessings we have to study to show ourselves approved. We thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.